Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Janice Hadlow about the other Bennett sister. Jane Austen's popularity more than two centuries after her death remains unabated. Indeed, it is probably greater now than during her lifetime, and it has inspired an entire industry of explorations into the lives of this or that minor or even major character. Of the six novels, Pride and Prejudice holds a special place, and it is the life of Mary Bennett, the third of the five daughters in that story, that inspires Hadlow's book. Part 1, Chapter 1 It is a sad fact of life that if a young woman is unlucky enough to come into the world without expectations, she had better do all she can to ensure she is born beautiful. To be poor and handsome is misfortune enough, but to be penniless and plain is a hard fate indeed. Four of the five Bennett sisters of Meryton in Hertfordshire had sensibly provided themselves with good looks enough to be accounted beauties in the limited circles in which they moved. Jane, the eldest, was the most striking, the charms of her face and figure enhanced by the unassuming modesty of her character. Elizabeth, the second sister, made up in wit and liveliness for any small deficiencies in her appearance. Whilst Catherine and Lydia, the two youngest, exhibited all the freshness of youth, accompanied by a taste for laughter and flirtation, which recommended them greatly to young men of equally loud and undiscriminating inclinations. Only Mary, the middle daughter, possessed neither beauty, wit, nor charm. But her sisters shone so brightly that they seemed to cancel out her failure, and indeed eclipse her presence altogether, so that by the time they were grown, the Bennet family was regarded as one of the most pleasing in the neighborhood. And now, please join me in welcoming Janice Hadlow. Hi, Janice. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Caroline. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you very much for asking me. You worked for years at the BBC. What did you do there, and did it feed into your writing career in some way? Yes, I was I, I was at the BBC for many, many years. Um, towards the end of my career, I ran two of the BBC's networks, BBC Two and before that, BBC Four. Um, that involved a sort of overview of the content and the characters and uh, the general general scope and feel of the channel. But before I did that, I was a producer. I was a, a producer of factual documentaries. And um, I suppose what I learned doing that was actually very useful to my later career in writing. Um, it's all about storytelling. I learned, I think, how to put a story together. I learned how to make a story sustain. Uh, most documentaries are an hour long, and I learned how to make things work over a period of time for an audience. So I think, although it's very different to writing fiction, that uh, that part of my BBC life definitely contributed towards um, the storytelling skills that I've tried to exploit in Mary Bennett. You have written a non-fiction book also about the English Regency, which is, of course, the time when Austen lived. Uh, it's called A Royal Experiment, Love and Duty, Madness and Betrayal, The Private Lives of King George III and Queen Charlotte. What can you tell us about that book and why you wrote it? 
Well, I suppose that was the first expression of my passion for this period. I've always been interested in 18th century people. Um, it's probably true to say that the first 18th century people I really ever met were in the books of Jane Austen. But before I came to write more directly about that, I was very interested in George III. Um, this book, though, however, although he plays a major part in it, um, it's principally in some ways about the women in the family. Um, families interest me. I've always been interested in the inner dynamics of a family. And this story is really a family story that goes wrong. It's uh, about the tragedy of good intentions. George III comes to the, the throne hoping to be a very different kind of monarch, but also a very different kind of husband and father to the kings that have gone before him. And this book is a really the story of how that all goes wrong and falls apart uh, and what the consequences of that were for his wife, Charlotte, who I was interested in because she's a very, very clever woman, um, probably the cleverest woman ever to be married to anybody in, in, in the British royal family, uh, very scholarly, very thoughtful, and she soon found the limitations of her role pressed upon her very hard. And also his daughters, who, um, whose lives were in some ways uh, utterly ruined by all the very good intentions that he had for them. And uh, these are, it's a quiet domestic story, but nevertheless one that I felt um, was, very, was very illuminating of the options for women's lives in the 18th century. So although they seemed like an extraordinary family, I think in some ways they had something to tell us about how everybody lived in that period. So I was very drawn to it for that reason. I should correct myself there. I mean, George III is not really the Regency. The Regency occurs during the end of his life when he is um, non-compass mentis, so to speak. <laughs> um, so what made you decide to write a novel about Mary Bennett, particularly? I suppose uh, I've been reading Jane Austen since I was a teenager, and uh, I think probably, although Persuasion runs at a very close second for me, I'd say that Pride and Prejudice is still my favourite of her novels. Like a lot of people, I think when you first read it, you, you, the only person you can really see in this book is Elizabeth. Elizabeth Bennet is so bright, light and sparkling. She's such a wonderful heroine. She's so clever. She's so handsome. She's so witty. She's, she, it's very hard ever to take your eyes off Lizzie. And it took me, probably I've been reading this book on and off for about 15 years, I imagine, before I started to turn, I started to notice this rather shadowy figure. At the edge of the at the edge of the story, and the more I started to think about Mary Bennett, the more interested I became in her. Um, she she isn't a character I think that Jane Austen very much likes, and that actually made me more interested in her. Um, and it began to occur to me, I suppose, what this story might look like from her perspective. What did what did life at Longbourn look like if you were Mary? Because it's quite clear, and Austen makes it quite clear, that Mary didn't at all fit into this family, that she's very much an outsider in a large family. She has no allies, no real friends for um, and we only ever see her through the rather jaundiced perspective that Austin offers her. And I began to get rather intrigued and think, I wonder what would look like if you put a more sympathetic interpretation of Mary's life. And that's, I suppose, I've been thinking about that for many years and wondering what kind of person might Mary be if we got into her own mind and if, she, if we were able to see these events from her perspective. And that's what really drew me to thinking about it. So who is your Mary? Uh, I'm asking particularly about her personality, but 
also um, do include a little description of her place in the family. Just, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone listening to this has not known something about Pride and Prejudice, but just in case, remind them who she is uh, in the play, you know, in the larger scheme. Well, the picture that we get from Mary, purely from the novel, is uh, that she's, what do we know about her? She's plain. She's pompous. She's a very serious person. She's not given much to humour. Uh, she always says the, the wrong thing. There's virtually no point in the novel when anyone says anything about her or to her that implies any affection. Uh, she's treated with, at best, uh, uh, sort of endurance by her family. There's no sign that anybody particularly loves or cares for her. There's one particular line in Austin that uh, I think tells you the whole story. Austin describes Mary like this. Mary, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments and was always impatient for display. So we're supposed to think, I think, that, you know, not only is Mary not only is Mary awkward and dull, but she doesn't know it. And she has she manages to show off at the same time. There's a vanity about her, if you like, as well as all these other failures that Austin loads onto her. But it seems to me that when you read that with a more sympathetic point of view, that actually what we see going on with Mary isn't so much vanity but desperation. A need to succeed at something, to have some kind of skill, some kind of attribute that would mark her out as having some value in this family. We know that nobody values her because she's not beautiful. Her mother, who is very, very beautiful, uh, clearly thinks that she's failed in the first object of being a daughter. She's failed to turn out pretty. Uh, her father, who you might expect to have some sympathy for her uh, because she places so much interest in books and he's a bookish man always in his library he has nothing for sc but scorn for her because she doesn't have the quick ready wit that lizzie has so she can't please either of her for either of her parents she doesn't fit into the dynamic of the family she's the two the two elder daughters jane and lizzie are uh, paired together as do the two younger ones lydia lydia and uh, kitty and there's no one left for mary so she's she's lonely She's plain. She's serious. All of those things that seem like almost, uh, almost, almost to mark her out for becoming a victim seem to me that things that actually potentially might make her more interesting. So my Mary, I suppose, is more self-aware than Jane Austen's Mary. Uh, Austen does that wonderful thing. I just, just in that quote that I gave you. I think one of the reasons why people return to Austen again and again and think about what her novels might look like from the perspective of other characters is that she always offers you these little clues. There are clues throughout the book about what, how did these people become like this? Who are they really? That's not for her to follow up on. She's got her own job to do. Lizzie is her person and she doesn't really, she brushes aside Mary and she moves on. But that gave you a clue to who Mary was, that actually what she's seeking for is love and affection and some kind of value. For somebody who is of no value to anybody, that's what she most wants. And that was the Mary who I became interested in, the Mary who's looking for some kind of some kind of self-realization, some kind of respect to be somebody who is not just the one that doesn't fit into the family and whom nobody loves. I agree with you. I mean, what draws me to Austin is those little almost asides where she just nails a character in a sentence and a half. And you just, I mean, I just, every time it stuns me. It's like, my gosh, how did she do that? 
Well, that's her genius, I think. And, you know, for me, in that one line I just read out, there's a whole life in that line, you know, a whole sad, thwarted life in that single line. Um, and, you know, it seemed to me that you can do that with a, a number of other characters. But, you know, the, the one that I think, because, uh, speaking as a bookish person, a bookish woman myself, you know, I knew what it was like uh, as, a, as a teenager to feel that my real life happened in books. And I think that's something that, I think that's something that, happens to Mary. I think she, books for her are both an intellectual excitement, but they're also a refuge. And I think Austin understands that. You know, Austin herself was a, a bookish young woman, uh, perhaps not the most beautiful person at every party. So, you know, in some ways, you'd expect her to have more sympathy for Mary. I suspect that there is a bit of Austin uh, tucked away in that picture of Mary. But she, you know, that, as I say, that's not her job. She's got other things to do. And so she leaves Mary alone and disappears off into the, into the magic of Pride and Prejudice. But it was, those, it was those attributes, those characteristics that made me think that Mary was worthy of being given a little more attention. So why is it so important for her to be pretty and accomplished? What is going on with this family at the beginning of the book? Well, I think I think that, that what happens at the beginning of the book is that we meet this we meet this family in one of the wealthier, lusher parts of, of England, not far from London. They're in Hertfordshire, even now a green and prosperous suburb of London. Uh, they, we know that that Mr. Bennett is is comfortably is comfortably situated. He's not a great he's not a great aristocrat, but he's a landowner. They've got a nice house. They've got servants. They've got land. So from the outside, everything looks pretty okay. But you realise quickly that the the one real problem for them is that they don't have a son. So they've had daughter after daughter, but their property can only be inherited by a boy. The, this is the famous entail that everybody talks about in in the book. So unless the Bennets can produce a son, um, they're not the, the, the property isn't going to be passed down to any of the daughters. Um, that would be problematic enough. But Austin also tells us that because uh, every year the two Bennets thought that a son would arrive, they never really bothered to save any money. So not only can the daughters inherit, but they don't have any what the 18th century would have called portions. They can't bring any money to um, a marriage. They don't really have very much money. They have some, but it's not really enough to attract the kind of suitor that Mrs. Bennett in particular would like for her girls. So she realizes quite early on, Mr. Bennett is interesting. He sort of just he doesn't really want to acknowledge any of this, so he sits in his library and sort of ignores it. And uh, to some extent, if you have any sympathy for Mrs. Bennett, it's because she's the realist of the family. She does understand that unless the daughters can marry well, she's not quite sure, it's not clear what's going to happen to them. And the only, the only attribute that she really prizes for a good marriage is beauty. And again, a close reading of Pride and Prejudice helps explain that because it's clear that that's what actually Mrs. Bennett did herself. She's slightly down the social ladder from Mr. Bennett. She's made a very good marriage by marrying Mr. Bennett. And Austin tells us that, you know, that happens because Mr. Bennett thinks she's so beautiful. And that's the tragedy of the Bennett marriage, if you like, because uh, Mr. Bennett doesn't really give a moment to think about whether this is a woman who's really suited to him, whether he wants to, whether they're going to make a couple who will make each other happy. All he thinks about is Mrs. Bennett's looks and marries her and lives, as Austin says, to regret it for the rest of his life because uh, he cannot respect her. That's the great tragedy of their marriage. So in two ways, I think, we start off in a world that looks very idyllic and comfortable and lovely, but actually 
the economic basis of Feed Bennett's life is pretty fragile. And once you spend some time inside that household, you realise that this is far from a happy marriage as well. So I think that gives us uh, it gives Austin huge amounts of uh, material to work with there. And uh, that's so those, those are the challenges really. Um, can can these can these this family of girls survive what's coming? As everybody knows, it must. And what will they need to succeed? And Mary, if you like, is the only one not with the basic attribute Mrs. Bennett values. She's made the mistake of not being born beautiful. So she's never going to be a favourite of her mother's right from the beginning. She's The odds are cast against Mary right from the beginning. Um, and in a way, I think that's what attracted me to her. She's a, she's a victim almost before she's grown up. And uh, it's hardly surprising in those circumstances that a clever girl like her understands that quite soon and under- in- internalises, if you like, the idea that she's failed. Even when she's a little girl, she's already failed. She, as you mentioned, she's bookish and um, she's really a very small part of the original novel. So the, the really interesting part of your novel is not, I mean, it starts with Austin, but it goes way beyond Austin. And because she's bookish, she needs spectacles. And so that introduces John Sparrow. Um, tell us about him. Well, I was I was interested to try and think um, how would Mary how how would Mary meet somebody from outside the immediate family? Um, this is an invented character, somebody I've made up. Uh, I got this idea actually from um, one of the in my previous factual book. One of George the Third's daughters has to wear spectacles, and she absolutely hates the idea because she thinks that every time she goes out into public, people are going to laugh at her, and it's just going to be such a major problem for her. And I and I thought that was some that was perhaps what Mary might think, but Mary would weigh that up and decide that uh, she would rather wear spectacles and be able to read than have the prospect of not wearing spectacles. And also, this would be a great moment for Mrs. Bennett when she would she would make the opposite decision. It would be much better for Mary to try and. look as attractive as Mrs. Bennett thinks she possibly can and not wear spectacles. So it was a it was a clash, if you like, of the attitudes of mother and daughter to what's valuable in the world and what and what it was what we might want to make sacrifices for. But it was also an opportunity to actually for the first time present Mary with somebody who perhaps didn't actually share the family's view of her as a as a, a dull, a dull, unworthy person. Uh, so she meets the she meets the the, the apprentice, a son, who's working with his father as a, an oculist, somebody who can provide Mary with glasses. And he's obviously again he's he's down the social pecking order from Mary. He's not he's not somebody who would be considered a very desirable husband for her because he's in trade. Uh, and so when it becomes clear that actually he is quite intrigued by her, he's a rather thoughtful young man himself. He thinks that actually she's she has in, she has interesting things to say about books that they both read. There's a little flirtation bef- between them, but it's an, but that is very quickly crushed in my book uh, between by the by the terror that Mary feels of her mother's disapproval, and she feels that she's acted very cruelly towards John Sparrow and is 
consumed with guilt that she has allowed her feelings to run before her, if you like. She's, that she's taken off the discipline that she has on allowing herself to ever think that she could be valued by anybody. And the, up, the upshot of all this is that she's hurt the only person who's ever shown her any real affection. So it's a little mini tragedy at the beginning of the story, which shakes Mary quite profoundly because she's forever after terrified of repeating this, of actually um, lacking the courage to find her own way and to brave the disapproval of others and feeling that she, in a way, has let down this person and has hurt him when all he ever wanted to do for her was was to show her kindness. Even though... um... Mr. Bennett doesn't love Mary the way he loves Lizzie. He does allow her into his library after a while. And one of the things she finds there, which she's able to read because she has the spectacles now, is A History of England by a Mrs. Catherine Macaulay. Uh, is that an actual series or did you make it up? Oh, yes. No, no, no. Catherine Macaulay is a, is a real person, um, probably deserves a book all to herself, actually. She's an amazing woman. She um, She was a... She was, a, she was probably the first English woman to become a historian. Uh, she had eight volumes of, of English history, which are actually all about the 17th century, so a time of great upheaval in the UK, uh, the English Civil Wars, uh, the execution of, of Charles I. This is a great moment of, of historical uh, turbulence and one that was very interesting to the 18th century, which followed it. Um, and it was thought she she came at this from the point of view. She's quite a radical thinker. She's a liberal. Um, she was all in favour on the whole of uh, the, the the Republican Cromwellian side of the argument. Um, and she became known as the celebrated Mrs. Macaulay. Uh, she was so famous that actually there's a little china figurine made of her that you could put on your mantelpiece. And so she's a so I thought she's exactly the kind of person that Mary would find interesting. The idea that actually a woman could write a big, well well appreciated work like this, that um it, it wasn't in a way she would have known that there were lots of women novelists around, but Mary, I don't think, is ever going to be a novelist. That's really not who she is. But she is a sort of bookish, thoughtful, uh, slightly ploddingy person, perhaps, who likes that sort of thing. Uh, you know, somebody who would be happier amongst factual detail than amongst the world of the imagination, at least when we first meet her. And I thought it would be very good for Mary to actually see that a woman could do such a thing, and it might make her think hard about what might be possible for her to do. Um, it's interesting just as a little footnote to Catherine McCauley so she she actually at the age of 47 she's widowed very early and then when she's in her late 40s she marries again a man of 21 and uh, that I'm afraid destroys her reputation and she writes very little after that um, but she was actually in America in 1704 and she goes to stay with um, Washington so she's you know she's a she's a very famous person in her time and somebody who I think was a, would have been a good role model for Mary, which is why I, po- I pop her in there. That's absolutely fascinating. I don't know how I've missed her all these years, but I'm glad to know about her. Yeah, no, she's a, she's a really fascinating character. She's a member of a, she's on the edge of the blue stocking group of, uh, you know, a fem- of female, female philo- philosophical thinkers and writers who are prominent in the mid 18th century. And, you know, this is the kind of, these are the kind of women who I think, uh, I think would have been very appealing to Mary. I suspect that Jane Austen had read uh, bits of Catherine Macaulay because it was a very well read, uh, I'm sure Mr. Austen would have had it in his library. So I wouldn't be at all surprised. Austin had actually read it. 
So until now, we've been operating still within the world of Pride and Prejudice, even though uh, we're changing the perspective so that we're looking at it from Mary's point of view. But in part two, you really take off on your own story, which I guess we could consider the consequences of what happens in Pride and Prejudice. So we're two years on, and Mr. Bennett has died, and Mr. Collins, one of my favorite characters, has taken over. <laughs> and... Um, so Mary uh, starts visiting uh, one relative after another because she doesn't have a home, starting with Jane. So tell us as much as you want us to know about these various visits. Well, I think the question that would have, that it would have been a real problem for Mary, uh, really, is, is what, what happens to her as uh, an unmarried daughter once Mr. Bennett has died. Uh, what happens to this family once he's died? Well, by the end of Pride and Prejudice, we know that Lydia, Jane and Lizzie are married and Austin notes somewhere else that Kitty gets married not long after. Um, Mary, it seems, is a far more problematic figure. What would have happened to her? So the options open to a woman like her uh, at that time would have been pretty far and few between. And one of them would simply have been to live with her closest relatives. Um, where was she going to go? So she had so. I envisaged, I was trying to understand why wouldn't that work for Mary? Why doesn't? Why can't she find a place with the two wealthiest of her sisters? Why wouldn't she end up living with um, either Jane or Lizzie? And I tried to show in two sections why I think that won't work for her. And they're both in a way, one of them introduces, uh, one of them introduces a character who I make more of if she's actually uh, Caroline Bingley, who is Mr. Bingley's sister and who plays a part as a sort of rather um, scheming character in Pride and Prejudice. She's a bigger character in my book, and I suggest that actually uh, it's, it's, it's Caroline Bingley who pretty much drives her away from a life with uh, Jane and Mr. Bingley. Um, but then I think I was quite interested in uh, the situation in Pemberley, uh, what happens when, how difficult it is for a very loved-up couple, if you like, to find a space for anybody else in their life. And I think what I was, I think it was. It was a, if Lizzie was perhaps more sympathetic to Mary's situation uh, than others, and also, as I might suggest uh, later in the book, has some sense of guilt about the way that she treated Mary, why couldn't, why couldn't Mary end up living in Pemberley? And I tried to show why that was never going to be a serious prospect. So she goes to Pemberley and it doesn't work for her there. Um, her, third, her third place for me, uh, when she's trying to make up her mind what to do, is she takes up the invitation that Charlotte Lucas has extended to her to go and stay with, as she now is, Mrs. Collins, to go and stay with the Collinses in, Long, uh, in Longbourn. And that allows me to actually reimagine what Longbourn might be like when the Collinses were there, but also to spend some time thinking about what that marriage looked like. I'm interested in marriages in, these, in this book and what is a good marriage and what's not a good marriage. And what did the, what did the Collins marriage look like some years on? And that led me to actually rethink perhaps about Mr. Collins. Again, he's a he's a great character in Pride and Prejudice, but he doesn't, like Mary, have any awareness. You know, he we never enter into the world as it appears from Mr. Collins's point of view. And I was just interested in thinking what would happen to a character like him if he did have awareness and he realised after some years that actually 
actually this marriage that he has entered into is not at all satisfactory to him, that he hasn't got, uh, that Charlotte doesn't really love him, that it's a purely pragmatic arrangement and uh, she's entered into it for no other reason than security for herself. What would, what would he feel like that? How, how might that affect somebody like him? So that's an opportunity for me to look again at Mr. Collins, really, and also to look again at Charlotte. I love Charlotte Lucas. She's such a great character. Um, and in a way, I think she's Mary 10 years down the line. She's older than Mary. She's been a single woman for longer in the 18th century marriage market, and she knows how difficult it can be. Um, but she's, there's a steeliness, as we see to Charlotte, when she decides she'll accept Mr. Collins. We see that she's capable of quite tough decisions. And I suggest that actually that might in the end be turned against Mary herself, uh, ending up in a situation where none of those obvious uh, family relations have worked for her and she's got to look somewhere else. And in fact, um, I mean, first off, you know, it would be really awkward um, for Mary to be the poor relation in these two wealthy households, first the Bingley household and then at Pemberley, which is even more wealthy. Uh, so I can see why, you know, she would always feel, she, she already feels like she's the bit that fell off, sort of. I mean, she's she's the unregarded family member, and now here she is, kind of a third wheel, uh, to mix metaphors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, no, that's quite right, yeah. That was the fate, though, of many women in, I mean, if you were a single woman uh, in a, in a situation of where there's some money in the family, you know, the, the, the opportunities for you are so limited. I mean, either you could end up like Jane herself ends up with Cassandra and her mother living in a little house in Hampshire off the charity, basically, of her wealthy brother. That's one option for you. Or you ended up living in part of the big house on your own, always as a dependent single single sister or single sister-in-law. So the choices weren't that, that many for you. That is true. And it was very, and a lot, you can tell by contemporary letters uh, single women wrote that this was very galling and humiliating often for them because they, in a way, they were never ever, they were caught between childhood and adulthood because they weren't married women. Uh, they didn't really have a lot of agency or independence and they could find themselves in very humiliating circumstances, even though they weren't actually poor or starving or driven to, you know, they weren't like, the, they weren't, um, they weren't uh, absolutely on the breadline, but their lives were nevertheless often very circumscribed and very humiliating. Well, they were tolerated. Nobody really wants to be tolerated, right? You want to be appreciated. Well, I think, I think that's, absolutely, that's, that's absolutely right. And, they, and there was a sense, I think, that they'd failed. You know, that the, the job of a woman in the end was to get married in some way or another because what else was there? Um, and I think that's, I think that sense that it's interesting. There are, there, there are more, there, the, more people get married in the 18th century than did in centuries before. There was, there was more single people around in previous centuries than there were in the 18th century. Marriage becomes a big thing. So you became, you became more exceptional, if you like, having failed to marry than you perhaps had been 150 years before. And of course, as it's not a Catholic country, you can't be put into a nunnery, which was the other thing that often happens to unmarried women in Catholic societies. So it was very difficult to know what you did do. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was something that certainly Jane Austen knew very well. But Mary actually does establish a kind of emotional connection with Mr. Collins, briefly. 
Well, there's a moment in Pride and Prejudice when uh, Mary actually thinks that when Mrs. Bennet thinks that Mary might have married him. Uh, there's a moment when uh, Lizzie has turned down Mr. Collins and Mrs. Bennet is casting around trying to think, well, what do we do now faced with this disaster? And there's, a, there's a moment when she thinks Mary might have him. And I think uh, if you were looking at it from Mary's point of view, that actually Mr. Collins wasn't an impossible, wasn't an impossible match for her. And if Mrs. Bennet had been more sensible, if you like, and said the person who's most likely to marry, to marry Mr. Collins is Mary, it's quite possible that that could have been arranged. But I suspect Mr. Collins at that point wouldn't have married Mary because he was looking for he was looking if you like for one of the starrier daughters you know he first of all wants Jane and then he wants Lizzie whereas actually if he'd been more realistic it would have been obvious to him that neither of them were going to accept him and he doesn't end up with a uh, a brilliant witty uh, a brilliant witty star like Lizzie he has a much more he has a much more realistic uh, choice of partner with, with Charlotte Lucas and if he was prepared to take Charlotte, he might have been prepared to take Mary. That's certainly how Mary, in my book, thinks about it. You know, she thinks that why, why, why shouldn't she be a choice for a choice for him? And I think I was interested in if they were to meet again, uh, what may that, what might Mr. Collins think about that? If he was actually, as I say, self-aware enough to think about what alternatives there might have been to the rather unhappy marriage that he now has with Charlotte Lucas. You know, might he have thought, do you know what, actually, there's more, I have more in common with this bookish girl than I, a woman, I should say, than, um, than I do with my current wife. It's not an impossible thought for somebody like him. Um, so a lot of the drama that I think happens at Longbourn and it ends up with Mary having to leave there are about that sort of possibility. So to avoid giving away spoilers, we're just going to say that Mary does find a solution to her problem and readers can explore it in the book. Um, I want to get to uh, something else. Um, One of the things I particularly admired from the opening sentence was that somehow you managed to capture Austen's rhythm of speech, the way that she writes um, about these characters. How did you manage that? Well, I suppose I'm, I'm very flattered that you think that. That was the thing I most wanted to do. I wanted to try and write something that felt as though um, it was, it, it reflected the cadence and uh, sort of satirical edge and um, particularity of Austin's, Austin's writing without trying to be a pastiche of it. Um, I think I've spent, I've spent an awful lot of time amongst 18th century correspondence and letters. Uh, I did that for my first book, and I'm at the moment writing another book. And um, I love, I love that style. I love the style. I love the style of 18th century writing. Um, it's, it seems to me to be uh, a sort of unique hundred years in the writing of English when uh, it has all the qualities that I enjoy. There's an edge to it, there's a tartness to it, there's often a sort of satiric edge to it, but it's also incredibly candid. Uh, these people say almost anything to each other when they write to one another. They're very honest and open about their emotional feelings and they have a very particular way of expressing themselves. And I think I've been reading these letters for so long, probably for 15 years now, that I'd like to think that perhaps some of it had rubbed off on me a bit. And, you know, I've got a sense of the way that they speak to one another. Also, not 
often the thing you get from correspondence is how people spoke to each other when they weren't on show, as it were. So the kind of more intimate conversations that people have between one another, which you do, of course, get in Austin. But I think um, I feel as though I've lived amongst the correspondence and writing of, of, of 18th century people for so long that, um, as I say, I'd like to hope that some of it shows in what I've tried to write in the book. What would you like readers to take away from the other Bennett sister? Well, I suppose um, when we read Pride and Prejudice, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the thing we really love is Lizzie. And uh, we do all love to be Lizzie, handsome, assured, always there with the right word, always knows what to do, um, always is in control of things. And therefore, when she gets her happy ending, it doesn't seem surprising to us. But I think Perhaps a lot of us also know what it feels like to be Mary Bennett, uh, disregarded, awkward, always saying the wrong thing, uncertain about themselves and their future. And I wanted to write a book which felt that a woman like that had as much right to be the heroine of a book as a wonderful, glittery Lizzie figure. And I hope that people will take away from it the sense that Mary, Mary and people like her, like all of us, deserve a happy ending just as much as Lizzie does. And um, it's not, I'm not throwing any spoilers in to say that Mary's happy ending doesn't involve rolling acres, doesn't involve uh, becoming mistress of Pemberley, but it's a happy ending that suits her. And um, I think we all deserve that in the end. And I hope that people would enjoy seeing um, a rather a rather ignored and undervalued character enjoy the same happiness at the end of a book as uh, a more conventional heroine does. This novel has just come out, and you mentioned that you're working on something new. Is it another novel? Uh, I'm, I'm writing another novel after my next book, but the next book that I'm writing is a, um, is a factual book. Um, it's about an extraordinary 18th century love affair between an older woman and a younger man. Um, and uh, you really couldn't... If you, if you wrote it as fiction, I don't think you probably would believe uh, the trajectory of their lives. So I'm deeply immersed in that at the moment, and I'm hoping that that will come out um, in 2021. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Janice. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me, Carolyn. It's been great to talk to you. 